So in chapter 21, David's on the run from Saul, his father-in-law and the king, who's jealous, obsessed, and out of his mind against David. And David's running for his life. And as he's fleeing for his life, we pick up the text. Now, David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech was afraid when he met David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one is with you? So David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has ordered me on some business and said to me, Do not let anyone know anything about the business of which I send you or what I have commanded you. And I have directed my young men to such and such a place. Now therefore, what have you on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand or whatever can be found. And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the men have at least kept themselves from women... And then David answered the priest and said to him, Well, truly, women have been kept from us for about three days since I came out, and the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is, in effect, common, even though it was consecrated in the vessel this day. So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the showbread, uh, but the showbread, which had been taken from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it was taken away. Now, this story is connected to Matthew, like I said, so I'm going to read the Matthew text, chapter 12 of the Gospel of Matthew. This is how this story reads. It's connected to this story a thousand years later. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he, Jesus, said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you, in this place there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So again, this text in Samuel is one of those wonderful stories where we get a full New Testament interpretation, understanding, and further revelation of it for its application. So it's extremely beneficial for us in that sense. So keep that Matthew text in the back of your mind. We'll come back to that later on with the text we read here. So David and the showbread. As I mentioned earlier, David was fleeing for his life. As he came here to Nob, where Ahimelech was, this is where the tabernacle was, the central place of worship for Israel at this time before the temple was built. Now, within David's timeline, he'll move the capital of Israel to Jerusalem. And his son Solomon will build the temple there in Jerusalem, and that will become the future central place of worship for the next thousand years for the nation of Israel, even to this day, that central point. The Western Wall is still part of the foundation of the temple that was fortified by Herod. Okay, so, but at this time, this is a central place. So it's like David is going to church. This is his place of worship. When he goes to the tabernacle, it's the central place of worship. And there in the tabernacle, we had the, we'd have the showbread, the altar of incense, and the lampstand. These are the three things that we studied made of gold in the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy that were outside the holies of holies. So in the tent of the holy place, 
Two-thirds was the holy place where these three elements were, the showbread, the table of showbread, the altar of incense, and the lampstand. And then inside the veil, the final third, was the holies of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, that the high priest went into once a year to make atonement for his sins and then the people's sins. And that's Yom Kippur, which Sam just taught on, on Tuesday, and then the Day of Atonement, the scapegoat, and all of that. So this is the central place of worship where David went to with the priests. So Ahimelech is a Levite. He's there. He's the guy in charge of everything. It's the central place of worship. It's that place where all of Israel was meant to go. Listen, very important. No matter which of the tribes you came from, this is a place that you would go to and feel comfort and peace. When you come here to worship the Lord now for 17 years on most of this church, we want you to come in here and feel it is a, a, a place of comfort and peace. It's a place where you worship the Lord. It's a place where you, you, you pray with one another and meet new friends and worship, worship with Scott or Jack or Danny leading us in worship, where you receive the word, where you break bread into food and fellowship. This facility, if years from now we no longer exist and your, your little kids drive by here as adults, we want them to remember what life was like on these grounds and in this place and, and what the Lord did here. Like for it is how it is for so many people with Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. 3800 South Fairview Avenue is a great memory for so many people for over four decades with Pastor Chuck teaching there and your kids going to school, MCA sixth grade graduation, junior high graduation, high school graduations, the services, 9-11, when thousands of people came there, the National Day of Prayer after 9-11 where the church was overflowing, all these memories is a safe place. It's a place where you feel safe. Even as a kid and a young adult, I would at times go to the local Catholic church, which was my understanding is where I went to just kind of be with the Lord. I would go to St. Francis fairly often when I was a pro surfer by myself and just gather my thoughts, think about my life, think about what God wanted to do in my life, why I wasn't more obedient, how can I get these things right, but I would go there, and I'd drive by St. Francis, and it represented that. And many of you went to my mom's memorial at that same church two years ago. All those years I was there at St. Francis, how could I know that's where I'd bury my mom? But that's where I buried my mom. And some of you were there on that day. This is that place for Israel. This is the central place of worship. And here comes David, the one anointed by, king, by the prophet Samuel to be king. Surely that was known to the high priest running the show at this time. Or at the very least, the high priest certainly know, knew that David was the son-in-law of the king, a mighty warrior for the Lord, fearless, courageous, and a man of faith. Maybe he already knew about some of the songs David had written at this time in his life. When David showed up at Nob, it should have been an exciting time. It should have been a joyful time. Like when old friends used to come and see Pastor Chuck. Or when someone comes to worship generation, they used to go here years ago, and they, they hang out after service. Emily Foster was here a couple weeks ago, and they, though they've only been gone a couple years, the Foster family, they were such a key part of this church. And, you know, lo and behold, it's 10 at night, and there's Emily Foster back there talking to people. And she said when she walked in, she didn't hardly know anybody anymore since post-COVID, and so many people moved and everything changed. But it's that place. It's just that place. And it should be a joyful place. But in the time of this story, in the time of this event, 
where this holy place, the central place of worship, where the showbread is, it's the business of religion as usual, if you will, because it was not religion in a bad way, but it was as God prescribed for the nation of Israel. So the priests would go in and they'd change the bread every week. And that's what they're called to do. And ultimately that bread spoke of Jesus because he said, I'm the bread of life. And then he even, the Gospel of John said that his flesh was the bread that we eat. And that the idea that our real life, the physical man or woman needs bread to, to food to eat was air, water, um, food, bowels, and sexual drive. Those are the five drives of Maslow. And you can go three minutes without air, you can go three days without water, and you can go three weeks without food. But th- those drives are extremely powerful, and they're put there by God. And the physical drive for food is really ultimately to show us the spiritual drive of our soul to a higher calling, a different dimension, the relationship with God that was lost with the original sin. And thus Jesus would, they had this showbread, and he comes and he says, I'm the bread of life. So even the showbread has a deeper meaning in the, in the scheme of things, because, of course, when Christ came and died and rose from the grave, there is no more showbread. There is no more Yom Kippur. There's no more Day of Atonement. There's no more Passover lamb. There's no more light, uh, the incense, because Jesus is the light of the world. He fulfills it all. They were all shadows of things to come, but the fullness is Christ. But here it's the shadows, a thousand years before he comes. And here David, the man that God says has a heart for him, comes to this place in a desperate, difficult circumstance. It's a desperate situation for him personally and for the nation. And that showbread, as is implied by the text with Jesus in Matthew 12 and the Old Testament, has a very specific purpose. It's to be eaten by the priest. It's changed every week. And it, it really wasn't for David or his men. That's important to understand. So as we look at this text now, the rest of the night with this context, for the heart of God. Because this story, along with the text in Matthew 12, really shows us the heart of God toward people. And it's really important, as we're gathered here as the Church of Jesus Christ tonight, that we understand this text as it applies to us, and it applies through us, toward people that we share planet Earth with in the human experience. This is the background. So, the heart of God revealed in both these stories, the shadow, chapter 21, and the fullness, Matthew 12, when Jesus sheds light on it. Well, the first thing we see here is it is desperate times and it's desperate people. There are desperate situations for people, and there are desperate situations that affect a lot of people. David personally is a desperate situation where his father-in-law is trying to kill him and he's running for his life. It's real. It's desperate. He's scared. The most powerful man in all Israel wants him dead and is pursuing him. And we're going to have this topic for the coming weeks as Saul continues to chase him and pursue him around Israel for what would have been years. David is a desperate person. And the context, there is fear. Well, there's practical hunger for David. David is hungry. When you're hungry, you're desperate. He's hungry. He's literally hungry. His guys with him, in the next chapter, gets David's mighty men. There's a whole chapter dedicated in 2 Samuel to David's 30 mighty men. And the beginning of the mighty men takes place in the next chapter. He's got men with him that are by his side, that bear witness to God's calling on his life, and they're together with him in his journey. So he's a desperate person. His people with him are desperate. They're being pursued. They're, they're fugitives. They've done no wrong. 
there's no wrong against them for why they're being pursued. It's one thing to be a criminal and be on the run. It's quite another when you're innocent and you're being pursued by insane totalitarians. And that's exactly how Saul was at this time. Remember, he's throwing spears even at his own son at this point. David's desperate. There's desperate people. There's desperate circumstances. Ahimelech's desperate. Why would the high priest be afraid when David shows up? You'd think they'd be like happy. Like, I mean, the sword of Goliath is on the grounds, which you took, looked at last week. You think he'd be like, hey, let's just hang out. Let's talk about good things. Like, dude, I got the sword of Goliath. <laughs> dude, there's the sword of Goliath. Like just like when surfers get together, they look at each other's boards. Like they check out boards at the beach. You're like, dude, I like the rails on this thing. You're like, like just something joyful. But instead, it's very... Ahimelech's like, well, hey, what's going on? He's, a de- he's the high priest, and it's a desperate situation for him. He's afraid because Saul has made everybody afraid. It's like the time we're living in. These people in power in our own country, they, they make you afraid because pretty much everything you want to do, they stand for, say, and follow up on is contrary to the good things of God, whatever is true, just, holy, noble, and praiseworthy. So it does feel very threatening to anyone that's trying to do the right thing on planet Earth for Jesus Christ to feel afraid from these people that have power, abuse power, and want more power. And if they make you afraid, don't feel like you're alone. Hey, if we were Christians in Europe in 1932, there's people that make us afraid. Stalin would make us afraid. Hitler would make us afraid. Mussolini would make us afraid. And that fear would be grounded. It's unfortunate that that's the way the human experience is. And right now, out of our control, there are authoritarian, totalitarian people that want to make people that are good people ashamed, embarrassed, canceled for being good and true, noble and holy. And they want to make us afraid. But don't buy the fear. Evil people thrive on fear and intimidation and bullying. But righteous people, they don't need to fear anything. The wicked flee when no one pursues them, but the righteous are bold as a lion, the word of God says. So when I look at this story, when Ahimelech, who should be full of faith, he's the leader of the faith, and he should be full of faith when he sees the anointed one who is confirmed to be anointed by the prophet, the greatest prophet in 400 years. You'd think everyone would be full of faith, but there's fear. So he acknowledges the reality of fear. It's a desperate time. It's a desperate situation. You study church history particularly Christians in China from like 1860 when Hudson Taylor first went there, the whole advance with the Inland China mission to like 1905 when he stepped into eternity, and then the time of Eric Little's parents, you know, Chariots of Fire, their time, Billy Graham's grandparents, uh, Ruth's parents, you know, Ruth was a missionary child they grew up in China, and their time in China, the World War I time in China, and all the fragmented, the communists and the boxers and the boxer rebellion in 1902 and all that, all the violence on Christians that were foreigners, Christians that were Chinese. And then you just go right through the 30s and being invaded by Japan and Manchuria and all that stuff. And then you've got Ken and Betty Stom and all these people that were, went through so much for the church of Jesus Christ in a desperate, difficult time. And I'm fascinated when I read stories like Eric Little or Hudson Taylor or the Stowns or the movie In the Seventh Happiness, you know, or the famous Hollywood movie, which is based on a true story as well, to to the most part. Gladiol's story. And you watch this time, like, how did they do this? Like, how did Christians, like, how did they 
stay there. How did Eric Little, who won the gold medal on a Tuesday for Britain and God and King and Country, how did he, how did he die of a brain tumor in a concentration camp in China? Yet he served the Lord to the last day. Like, what was it like when he put his family on the boat back to to, to put him on the boat to uh, to uh, I think it was Canada actually. The extended family was in Canada. Like, I just don't even know. And by the way, I don't want to know. Do you? But nonetheless, this is the legacy of the church. We need to continue to live by faith, no matter how much human government is trying to impose fear. Because fear makes everyone do weird things. It makes good people lie like David. It makes Corey Tim Boom have to lie. It makes... Uh, Rahab have to lie when they're knocking on the door to kill the spies whose lives are saving. When evil men and evil women are in power, it says in Proverbs 29 that the righteous hide themselves. And it's tempting to hide ourselves. But we're told that we're the light of the world, we're salt, and we're to be living our faith and having done all stand. So for the Church of Jesus Christ on planet Earth 2022, with a European war that appears escalating, again, just the insanity of our own government, and I'm not afraid to say it, and it all seems as it's coming to an apex, like a high tide mark, going towards something that none of us truly understand, whether it's the feds, the economy, the stock market, or any of these things. Do not live in fear, body of Christ, but live by faith. When David comes to the place of worship and you're the high priest, greet him, shalom, shalom, in faith. Not because you understand what's going on or you control what's going on, but because you know who's on the throne of your heart and rules your mind. And while you know what the worst case scenario might be, you also live in the present of hoping for the best case scenario. Because, again, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence not yet seen. And our faith, we're told that we overcome the evil one by our faith. That's how we overcome them. Faith and fear cannot inhabit the same place at the same time. This light can't be on and off at the same time. It's light or darkness, and it's faith or fear. And Desperate people are in desperate situations, but you must keep your wits, keep Christ enthroned in our heart, let the peace of God rule in our hearts, and keep the faith at all times. When we had the tornado warning in the car the other day, it's scary when your phone goes off and says, take shelter immediately, and you're surrounded by the most powerful storm you've ever seen in your life. But I knew what I needed to do in that dark highway in Texas. I knew there's shelter five miles back this way. And I knew there had to be a U-turn spot or I could take the middle divide if I had to, but I knew I couldn't go straight toward the shelter down warning. Okay. Remember General Henri taught at the Red Cross training 10 years ago, who was director of all relief of Hurricane Katrina. When there's a crisis, everyone dumbs down in a critical situation. 
Average people, he said this, I'm quoting him, average people get stupid, above average people get average. So it's really important that we keep our wits in desperate situations as desperate people. We're going to turn around, we're going to pray, we're going to drive fast but not reckless, we're going to go back here and we're going to take shelter there. That's what we're going to do. Observe what's the best situation, what's the next thing, and do what's next. That's what we do as a church. We have faith that God's in control. And we pray like things all in the Lord's hands, and then we make the best decision we can with any given circumstance, like Corrie ten Boom hiding Jews in her house in, the, in Holland when the Nazis are occupying, stealing, taking radios, and bullying people and taking them off to death camps. Our faith is always in Jesus, whether there's a tornado warning or the Nazis are knocking on the front door. Our faith is always in Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So in the case of David, Ahimelech is a desperate person. He's fearful because of the authority in the land, what's going on in the land, the mandates of King Saul. David's fearful because they're literally coming for him like a hurricane or a tornado. The most powerful man in the land is seeking him out to execute him. So he's lying. So in the midst of this situation, this story, we see that desperate people have desperate situations, and it's, it happens in real life. We, we cannot think that we get through this journey where we don't, we're not desperate people and we don't have desperate situations. We'll have personal desperate situations, and we can have social desperate situations. And planet Earth is definitely in the midst of a desperate global situation right now. Our entire planet, the way it does economy, everything is completely being thrown upside down right now. So I just acknowledge before all of you with faith in Jesus, these are the, this is the reality. And it shouldn't keep you from getting up and praising Jesus and having joy in your heart and getting about what the Lord has for you tomorrow and going to bed in peace tonight. Because even Paul said, when the Holy Spirit told him, there's going to be difficult, desperate situations for you in Jerusalem, he said, none of things move me, nor do I count my life dear to me, that I'm going to complete what God has for me. Our life is in his hands, our eyes are on Jesus, and we do the best we can every day. But we don't drink from the cup of fear, especially the fear of men, evil men, or women. We drink from the living water of Christ Jesus with our eyes on him as our hope. So desperate people should be that much more desperate for Jesus and that much more dependent upon Jesus with all things. So when the thoughts come at you, what are we going to do about retirement and the inflation and now we're going to recession? You know what? Like, what, do you, what are you going to do? I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what you're going to do. We're going to keep living for Jesus. Someone told me last night, oh, the banks, the government can do this with houses. And even if your house is paid off, if they want to take your house, they take your house. That's what the Nazis did. It's what Stalin did. He took all Ukraine back in the 30s. They just do what they want to do. Like, or in the late 20s, the Ukrainian famine with Stalin. Man, listen, if, if people, people want to take your house, your life, they're going to do it. So don't, don't lose sleep over it. Be faithful in the present. Be a faithful steward. When the Lord comes, he finds you doing what you're called to do. If evil men take it, it gives you a chance to have more fruit in eternity. That's the bottom line. Keep loving, keep forgiving, keep serving, keep planning, keep going forward. When it's all said and done, if you've got squatters in your property in Los Angeles County, you've got squatters in your property in Los Angeles County. Just give them to the Lord. It's fruit for you in eternity. 
What's better, rent in California in 2022 or eternal fruit for all eternity because they're not paying your rent and you can't evict them and you can't sell the property. And now that law goes till 2025. It's probably never going to end. He's going to trust in Jesus. He gave it to you. It's his squatter problem, not your squatter problem. The devil can take anything beautiful and make you terrified of it. The high priest, our high priest, Jesus, doesn't come with fear. What are you doing here? He's going to build us up. He's going to take us forward. He's not going to give us all the answers, but he's going to give us peace because he promises us peace. And he knows we're desperate people. He knows we're in a desperate time. People, you're so happy you don't see their faces on TV anymore right now. You never know when they're coming back. You never know when they're coming back. <laughs> you know what? What's the matter? Yeah, I could have got hit by lightning two days ago and I'm gone anyways. Why am I going to worry about Dr. Doom on TV? Peace, faith, Jesus. Desperate people, yes. And we should all be desperate for eternity and to live by faith and not be moved from faith to fear. Our hope is an anchor to the soul. Yep, hunger is real. Friends that are hungry with you is real. It's all real. So in the end, on this first point with desperate people, let our desperation in our desperate circumstances make us that more desperate for Jesus. And as we see desperate people around us, as Sam was teaching on the gospel Tuesday night, it's so simple. We give them Jesus. We give them Jesus in how we carry ourselves, how we speak, how we respond. In the midst of a global tornado warning, we give him Jesus. We give him peace. We're just desperate people. So be desperate for Jesus and bring Jesus to your desperate neighbors. Amen? It's actually an opportunity. The more the world looks bad, the more it just rises. The, the, world, the, the kingdom stands above the world anyways. But the more that things in the world make people unsettled, it's just an easier presentation of the truth of the gospel. And like Sam said Tuesday night, we're not craftily winning anybody of the Lord or trying to close the deal or something. We just, we just present the truth. How we look, how we live, how we carry ourselves. Now, the second thing we see in this story is common sense is good sense. I just, I tell, I've been telling Sam for three weeks, I just love this verse. David's all, hey, the bread is in effect common. You guess, so what a great quote. Because people get so religious, like, oh, we don't, we never do this. Uh, a Calvary Chapel never does it this way. Oh. You're just like, dude, it's bread. It's just bread. The bread is common. People get so weird with religion. People get so uptight and so worked up over this thing or that thing. And, you know, and, and like, just how, how could you be associated with, you know, like when Billy Graham went to Russia, as I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, and all the church in America came against him because he shook hands with the metropolitan of Moscow and the Russian church. And, oh, Billy, you've capitulated the faith. And he's hanging out with Pope John Paul. And like, oh, you've compromised. It's just like, dude, it's bread. It's bread. It's just bread. We don't want to be weird about the kingdom because God's not weird. We just want to be real. And this is a real situation. This is the man that God says has a heart for him. He's running for his life. The high priest is terrified. 
He's lying. David's lying. His men are hungry. And, and, and the priests the priest give him the credit. It's like, hey, look, this bread, you should never eat this bread. It's for Levites. It's not forbidden for you. But give him the credit. He's looking for a compromise in the middle ground. He's like, look, if you haven't been with women, so it's ceremonial cleanness. So that hasn't been sexual morality in three days. He'd be ceremonially clean. So he's like, hey, guys have been with women. Like, Ahimelech sees the situation. He's like, okay, how do I take this holy bread and give it to these men? And obviously something's not right. Everyone's afraid and lying in the moment. But how can I do this? Ahimelech is a good leader. He comes up with the basic thing. Hey, he didn't go, you're not Levites. You can't eat the bread. God's angry at you. You can get struck down with lightning at Mount Sinai. Our God's the God of the angry mountain. He didn't say that. He's like, okay, what are we going to do? Hey, you've been with women for three days? If not, you can have the bread. David's like, hey, anyone with his wife? Nope. Give me the bread. Common sense is good sense. Finding solutions, working with other people, not being weird, not being religious. These are things that God honors. Because again, our message tonight is the heart of God. And the heart of God is not being religiously weird and being rigid. Even Pastor Chuck used to say all the time, blessed are the flexible, for they won't be broken. And some people just cannot be flexible. Please be flexible when it comes to the kingdom. Not compromising truths. There's a big difference. Paul knew when he said there's no way Titus is circumcised because these guys want him circumcised because that's just, they say that's the only way he can be saved is to become a Jew. He's already saved by faith, so we're not going to make him a Jew and put him under the law. So no, Titus is not getting circumcised. That's conviction, and that's a non-compromise, because they're asking him to compromise the gospel. But when it came to Timothy's circumcision, Paul's like, hey, you know what? If you get circumcised because you've got the Jewish mom, it'll it create less problems for us. Just, just, it's not saving you. You're not going to heaven because of this. We're not under the law, but could you just do it so it'll make our job easier? Can you just, like, just make, Timothy, can you go? Timothy's like, yeah, no big deal. Well, we're good. Because Paul said, I become all things to all men that might win them to Christ. Titus' circumcision is compromising the true gospel. Timothy's circumcision is making ministry more efficient and effective for what they're doing and what they're called to do. So, yeah, we hold the ground. We don't compromise things that are non-compromising. But we do find middle ground and we find flexibility where there needs to be flexibility with good sense and common sense. It's bread. It's just bread. It becomes holy bread for a week when it's in the tabernacle. And then when it's done, we take the bread out and we eat the bread because it's just bread. That's what we do. And Ahimelech's like, okay, so I haven't been with women Everyone's clean. It's a little compromised. It's good. And David's like, yeah, it's good. Because it's just bread. Like maybe his friends are like, dude, can we really eat the show bread? Are we going to get struck by lightning? So we need to ask ourselves, what's more important? WG, really important question right now in this story. What's more important? David and his men or the bread? To God. To God who made humanity the crown jewel of his creation. On the sixth day, he made man and woman and made them in beauty and in glory. What's more important to God in this moment? This bread that's a week old and its religious value or perception or David and his men? Well, Jesus interprets for us in Matthew 12. 
The people are obviously more important because the Sabbath wasn't made for man. Excuse me, the Sabbath wasn't, man's not for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath is for man. We already know from what Jesus says that what's important in this story is human beings and people that are desperate and the heart of God for desperate people, not the bread. Major and majors and minor and minors. Know your macro and know your, your micro. And David had that right. He's got a heart for God. He's like, Saul wants to build altars when he's disobeying God. David knows that bread is just bread when he's trying to keep his life alive, hoping to fulfill what God anointed him to do. Common sense is good sense when serving the Lord. It's just bread. Yes, it's holy bread. But the universe is not about holy bread. There's not a trillion galaxies, and planet Earth is the center of the universe. And Jerusalem, the capital where Jesus was crucified and rose from the grave, he didn't come to Earth to make sure we all know that holy bread's holy bread. He came to Earth to save us from our sins because God so loved the world that he gave his son. It's always about people. And when people get caught up being weird with religion... And they attack other people who show more love, more compassion, more empathy in Jesus' name from another denomination than theirs. I just, I have no time for it. Because it's about people, not about bread. The bread is, in effect, common. So maybe keep this phrase in your mind with the Holy Spirit when you're tempted to be, like, rigid. And let the Lord speak to you. It's, the bread is, in fact, common. It's about people here. It's about people that... God loves and sent his son to die for. It's about people. The crown jewel of the universe. Jesus is the center of the universe, and the crown jewel is you. And the bride of Christ, the church, is the ultimate crown jewel. He loves all humanity, but we're, we're joint heirs with Christ. We're in the estate. We're in the trust. When the trust is read, we get eternal treasures with Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit has sealed us to confirm that for us until the day of Christ Jesus. My kids know they're in the trust, and I know I'm in the trust of the King and my Savior, Jesus Christ, and you should too. We're adopted into his family. We're joint heirs with Christ. It's, it's not about the bread. Now you say, well, yet we don't want to be frivolous toward holy things. Right, I agree. When Uriah went into the temple 250 years later, he was the king. He said, I can do whatever I want as a king, and I can be a priest too. So he went in the same room, the, the holy place where the bread is, but he got leprosy, and he ended his reign in exile as a leper. Which tells us it's not about the bread, it's about people, but it's also about the hearts of people. Because Uriah's heart was lifted up, and that's why he was struck with leprosy when he went in the room where the showbread was, let alone eat it. But David was protected by God when he ate the showbread, because the Lord looks at the heart. And he knows the circumstances of desperate people. He knows the motives. And he knows our heart. It's the heart of God to know our heart. And the bread is bread. It's in fact common. It's just bread. So that reminds us to to not get weird and just know God's about people and reaching people and loving people and serving people. And yeah, holy is holy. We understand that. But don't make bread the macro and Lord of the universe. Make lost people the macro and the gospel Lord of the universe. Finally, we go to our New Testament text with Jesus in Matthew. 
where back in Matthew 12, we get our third point. We have desperate people, desperate circumstances. We can relate to that. We, we realize from David in this story, Anahimelech, that common sense is good sense. Keep it real. It's just bread. And, and find, find a way to make these things work with the heart of God. But here in the New Testament, our third point comes from Jesus, David, Jesus and David's showbread. Because in this text that we read, Jesus tells us God's heart toward David and the showbread. So again, we see that Jesus in the context, like his David and his mighty men, Jesus and his apostles are eating the bread. But they're not eating the showbread. They're eating wheat on the Sabbath day. You see the similarity? Remember, Jesus took the title, Son of David. He's the fulfillment of the promises made to David a thousand years later. So here's the commonality. David is running for his life, eating the showbread, hungry. The word hungry is associated with both verses, or both texts, say hungry. David, his hungry men. Jesus, his hungry men. Both texts. Going through the field on the Sabbath, rubbing this now. Now, so we have to ask ourselves, is it about the showbread or about people? So is it about eating wheat kernels? Is that what it means not to do work on the Sabbath? Is that really what it means? Eh, we're back on the showbread. Is that really what it means to honor the Sabbath? That you can't do this? Now, remember what the Pharisees did. They took one commandment and added their own interpretations to it. Not just one. Not just ten. Not even just a hundred. They added 610 commandments to the Sabbath. I mean, you got to be pretty religious and self-righteous to add 610 rules to the Sabbath when the Sabbath was made for man to be refreshed. Do you realize in some parts of the world they never take a day off? The day off is designed by God to refresh us emotionally, mentally, physically, and spiritually. It's to benefit us. It's not so that we can be weird and not drive a car on Saturday like Seventh-day Adventists some do or whatever because that's sparking. You know, we don't drive around with buggies like the Amish in Indiana I look at Jeremy Camp and think he's weird because he has tattoos. I've lived that moment in Indiana. The Sabbath is from God to us to be refreshed and renewed for another work week, another 7 a.m. on the 405. It's not meant for us to be weird and make 610 rules to be weird and put those weird rules on other people. It's meant that we can laugh and go to the beach and laugh and smile and chuckle and get good coffee or go to Wahoo's and get fish tacos. It's meant to be refreshing. We can walk with our children, call our children if we have children, hang out with other believers, go play golf, go surfing, go surf Bolsa Chica. It's meant to be refreshing and enjoying. And so Jesus' apostles are doing this, and these Pharisees are out of their mind because they're rigid. They're religious. To them, it's all about the showbread. The center of the universe is keeping the Sabbath and the 610 rules we've given it. That's what they're about. Again, we just cannot be these people under any circumstance. Because eventually they put themselves against God. They put their traditions and rules over the word of God. Jesus said so himself. And when we're legalistic and harsh and we judge other people in freedoms and liberties, we in fact, from this text, would seem to be judging Jesus himself and how he's working in someone else's life. 
So Jesus said when he was accused, his apostles were accused of being not lawful on the Sabbath. He said in verse 3, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat. Jesus interprets the whole passage. Nor for those who are with him, but only for the priest. So what's more important? The law of the showbread? Or the heart of God, the higher law, what's right in the eyes of the Lord and his love for humanity and people? Desperate people in desperate circumstances. What's the higher law? To hand over the Jews you're hiding in your house, like the Tim Boom family, or to lie and hide them to save their lives? Which is the higher law? Morally, ethically, which is right in the eyes of the Lord? You see, these are the dilemmas that every generation must face. What's truly right is the heart of God for people. And again, MLK said it best. It's always the right time to do the right thing. The right thing is generally not difficult to read at all. It's just a matter of we're willing to do it at a risk to our own comforts and own safety and to stand when others won't stand and to know what you're called to stand for and be willing to die on that hill. In the end, the key phrase that Jesus said here is where he said, but... If you had known what this means, so the whole story of the showbread with David in Nob and with his apostles eating the bread on the Sabbath, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. See, lots of people are religious, sacrifice, sacrifice, this do good thing, this do good thing, but it's not the heart of God. Saul built a sacrifice when he did not obey the Lord. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Religious, self-righteous people build their own sacrifices to appease their conscience. Jesus' people, they don't even care about what people think of them. They serve the Lord, and they are merciful toward other people. See, David's key to his life is that he showed mercy, and he found mercy. And we're told that with the merciful, God will show himself merciful. The one who shows mercy gets mercy. Jesus taught the same thing, and David exemplified it for us. David was a man of mercy, and he found mercy. He wasn't rigid, but he was flexible, and he understood the heart of God, and we're told so by the Spirit of God in the Word of God. If you had known what this means, Jesus said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. The Pharisees condemned the apostles with their 610 commandments from the Sabbath. All 610 of those commandments were based upon a faulty concept of the heart of God and the word of God and its application for humanity. The foundation was completely wrong because the Sabbath was to refresh people, not to lord over them with a heavy thumb to oppress them. Because whom the sense that's free is free indeed. That's the law of liberty, of love in Christ Jesus. So to me, this is a very encouraging text because it shows us the heart of God understands desperate people. He doesn't bring up, this is where Jesus could have said, by the way, Jesus interpreting the story could have said, you know, that David was a liar. He was lying. And Ahimelech was fearful. He doesn't say like that. It's like that, that part of the tape is erased. David is exonerated and really affirmed and confirmed that it really is about mercy and not condemning others. In fact, if the apostles of Jesus were guiltless on the Sabbath, I think it's safe to say that David and his men 
were guiltless in the sense of just desperate people in a desperate situation doing the best they could. Now, there's fallout from all this. Ahimelech will die. Dog the Edomite, who we saw last week, he'll, Saul, they're going to kill all these priests. It's a terrible thing. But know this, David, the priests never knew they were not in a conspiracy with David when he did this. In line to them, he was protecting them as well because they could claim ignorance that they didn't know David was fleeing from Saul because they didn't. They weren't acting. But in the end, Dog the Edomite and guys like Saul, they're going to do what they're going to do, whether they live in China, Europe, or the United States. Evil men and women do what they do because they're evil. And we do the best we can as desperate people in desperate circumstances. But let those not move us from the heart of God and understand his heart for us and his heart for the people around us in difficult and desperate times. So desperate people, desperate times, yes, we know. Common sense, good sense is biblical sense. We get it. And ultimately, to the merciful, will those show mercy will find mercy. And God's about mercy. For it's the goodness of the Lord and the mercy of the Lord that brings men and women to repentance. So ultimately, it's mercy working in us and through us that is the heart of God, that we know that mercy and that we can extend that mercy. We don't have to be right. We don't have to be vindicated. But we certainly want to be tenderhearted toward the Lord and understand the heart of the Lord and reflecting it toward our neighbors, our acquaintances, and even our adversaries. God forbid we stand before the Lord and have him say, have you not read? We want to stand before the Lord and have him say, hey, you know, you, you went through some stuff, and you showed my heart. You knew my heart. You were mercy on display on planet Earth in 2022. That sounds much better for the day of the Lord, doesn't it? Yeah. God is good, and his heart is good for us, and his heart's good for our neighbors, and he's with us. He's not going to leave us nor forsake us. In Jesus' name.